Hello, friends, and welcome to the PrepWell podcast. I'm your host, Phil Black. And if you have an 8th, 9th, or 10th grader with big aspirations, like the Ivy League or military service academies like West Point, ROTC, or athletic scholarships, boom, you've come to the right place. My specialty, my superpower, if you will, is preparing families for these competitive programs. I'll teach you what your child should do, when they should do it, and how you can help. So stick around and prepare to out-prepare. Hello, friends, and welcome to the PrepWell podcast. Today's episode is mostly geared toward younger students. And by younger, I mean 10th graders and below. Because after 10th grade, the gig is pretty much up, and it's much more difficult to recover, at least as it relates to college admissions. And the observations and recommendations I will lay out today stem from my experiences with hundreds of prep wellers over the years, as well as my own personal experience with my four sons, specifically with my sixth grader. Now, I will admit that I am not a trained scientist, and my findings are more anecdotal and observational than scientific, but to me, they seem to make a lot of common sense. We'll see what you think. I also don't think my ultimate conclusions will come as a big surprise, but I hope they'll serve as a wake-up call before it's too late to act. Today, I'd like to talk about performing well on the verbal section of the SAT or ACT. And if you've been following this podcast, you know by now that I don't really buy into the theory that now that the SAT and ACT are mostly optional, that we no longer have to worry about them. Despite how convenient this theory sounds, and of course kids love it, I think that it's a bad strategy and a misguided mindset to adopt, which we will discuss. There are a lot of reasons to aspire to do well on one of these two tests, not only to differentiate yourself in the admissions process, hopefully, but to also see how you'll perform on a standardized test. The SAT and ACT will likely not be the last standardized test you ever take. I've taken dozens of these types of tests over the course of my life, from GMATs to military aptitude tests to the Series 7 investment exams, to medical exams, to civil service exams, and plenty of others. Why shy away from figuring out where you stand on these types of tests? Especially that at many schools, you're no longer required to submit a test score, at least for now. So why not do your best and see what you've got? It's great practice. Well, today's podcast has to do with studying for the verbal part of the SAT or ACT. And my studying advice for the SAT has nothing to do with spending money on a good tutor or learning tips on how to approach reading comprehension questions or how to pace yourself throughout the test. Those are all very, very late stage strategies that often don't move the needle all that much. They can help, but they're not gonna boost your verbal score by hundreds of points. It's too late for that. And as you know, Preppel Academy is all about early. What will boost verbal scores by hundreds of points is reading, plain old-fashioned reading. I know it's not sexy or new age or gamified, but it works. And if you have a child that is an avid reader from a young age, they will likely score well on the verbal section of the SAT, period. If you strip away every other factor, 
This is the factor that dominates. I know that may sound simplistic or maybe too easy, but I've seen it over and over and over again, including with my own two sons. Because to do well in the reading section, you have to be a fluent reader. You need to have reps and reps and reps of reading so that it's second nature to you. If you're not an avid reader and reading the passages on the SAT test is a chore and you have to struggle through it because it doesn't come easy to you, not only will you be too slow, but the mental energy taken just to read the passages will take away from the brain power that you need to answer the actual questions. Students, in my experience, who are well-read, meaning they read all kinds of different books and genres, fiction, nonfiction, they are more confident and comfortable during the reading section because it's familiar to them. They've been there before. They can, by dint of exposure alone, recognize grammar mistakes and syntax errors and sentence structures, and they can capture the essence of the passages faster. And the only way to achieve this level of comfort and competence is by reading from a young age. And please, 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 did I mention please? Please do not assume that because your child has been getting A's in English class, even honors in AP English classes, that they will necessarily score well on the verbal section of the SAT, or that they're even a good writer for that matter. They may be, but please don't just assume that they are, especially if you haven't seen or read any of their written work for several years. I know this is an easy thing to do. I've done it myself until I started putting two and two together several years ago. In my experience, getting A's in English class and performing well on the verbal section of the SAT are not tightly correlated. Reading and doing well on the verbal part of the SAT are correlated. And I know as a parent, you probably think that because your child gets all A's or close to it for years, that they will necessarily do well on the SAT. And it's a shock for most parents when they don't. They can't believe that the SAT score is so low because their grades have been so high. And they tend to immediately subscribe to the theory that I hear over and over again, which is that my son or daughter is extremely bright. I mean, really, really bright. She gets all A's, he gets straight A's, but he or she is just not a good test taker. What exactly does that mean, not a good test taker? Why wouldn't they be a good test taker? If they're so bright, and everybody says they're so bright, and they're getting A's in every class, shouldn't, be, shouldn't tests be a place where they shine? Why is it that subjective grades from teachers with classrooms full of 30 students are somehow more indicative of a child's intelligence than an objective test given to millions of students with decades of comparative data. I know it's disconcerting when your straight-A student lays an egg on the SAT, but I think we should all pause before immediately labeling them as somehow genetically inferior test takers, but otherwise brilliant scholars. In other words, be careful about how much credence you give to your child's grades. And don't be surprised if they don't deliver on the actual SAT right out of the gate. Which is why I am so adamant about having students take a diagnostic SAT and ACT test during their sophomore year. Because this will give you 
an unadulterated idea of where they stand on standardized tests. And if they lay an egg, it also gives them an opportunity to prepare for the real thing. It will wake them up to the fact that they need to get their act together if they want to be competitive. If you wait until the middle of junior year or senior year, thinking that your child will do just fine on the SAT because they've been such a standout student and everybody tells you that they're so brilliant, don't be surprised if the scores don't match those expectations. Okay, I got a little off track there. Let's get back to the matter at hand, which is how to ensure that your child does the best they can on the verbal part of the SAT. I believe that it starts early. If it turns out that with some combination of your influence and genes and environment and their attitude and early experiences and exposure to books and reading and some luck, that they become avid, if not voracious readers from a young age, I mean second or third grade, then they will likely do well, if not very well, on the verbal part of the SAT. That's it. That's my unscientific theory. If, on the other hand, it turns out that they do not take to reading, for whatever reasons, and it's a struggle to read, and they push back, and they can't find any books that speak to them, or they're lazy, or they just rather play video games or swipe on their phone 10 hours a day, the verbal part of the SAT will be a struggle, regardless of whether or not they get A's in their English classes. I don't care what they get in their English classes. I care whether or not they enjoy reading. Full stop. Okay, let's get personal. I have four sons. My first two are identical twin boys. And like most firstborn children, they were given a lot of attention. My wife and I try to, quote-unquote, do everything right, reading to them every night, enriching them, helping them with their homework, blah, 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 blah. We were trying to be the best parents we could. I would read to them with crazy British accents and wild intonations and gestures and costumes. It was a big production. And lo and behold, the twins took to reading. They read everything, fiction, nonfiction, in bed, in the car, Harry Potter, Ranger's Apprentice, Brother Band Chronicles, you name it. They weren't prodigies or particularly brilliant. They just happened to enjoy reading. And we, as new parents, because we didn't know any better, we took this for granted and assumed that that's what every kid did until we had our third child. When our third son came, I hate to admit it, but I had lost a bit of enthusiasm for the reading histrionics. I was a bit burned out. And of course, my wife and I still were dealing with the two older twin monsters who were not letting up, so our energies were divided. And no, before you call Child Protective Services, I did not abandon child number three. I still read to him and did my best to muster the same excitement and enthusiasm, but didn't deliver as much as I should, I'm ashamed to say. But at the time, I felt like I was doing my best. Well, lo and behold, my third son didn't particularly take to reading. He had many other things going for him, but on his own independent reading was not necessarily one of them. And finally, when our fourth son arrived, and I saw how things were turning out academically for sons one, two, and three, I realized that I had to regroup. I didn't want to leave son number four out in the cold. I was intent 
on helping him to become an avid reader, like his twin older brothers. I tried to go back to crazy British accent dad and wild costume dad and jump around the room dad, but for one reason or another, it still didn't quite stick. And by the time son number four was in third or fourth grade, he was somewhere in between the twins and son number three in terms of his enjoyment of reading. He didn't love to read, but he wasn't necessarily against it per se. So how was I to get son number four over the hump before it was too late? And by fifth grade, the window was closing quickly. How could I help him develop a love of reading? Because I saw before my eyes how reading had impacted sons one, two, and three. And I wanted son number four to enjoy the benefits of being a reader. So I tried all kinds of new strategies. Read 10 minutes a day, or read a chapter a day, or read before you get out of bed, or read right before you go to bed, read together at night. We tried what I termed co-reading, which meant that we would read the same book and then exchange notes every night about it. We got him books that he picked out himself that he liked. We tried family reading nights where we would all sit around and read independently for 30 minutes. I was pulling out all the stops because I knew from my own sons and from the hundreds of students who I coach in college admissions that reading, above all else, was the game changer, at least for the verbal part of the SAT. And in the end, I got so desperate that I made a deal with the devil. I made a deal with son number four that for every one and a half hours of reading, he would be able to play one hour of Fortnite. Lord help me, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. That was our ironclad deal. Not that the other strategies failed completely, but they just never caught flame. He never reached escape velocity. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a strategy that would create a tipping point after which there was no turning back. I wanted to generate a flywheel that would turn on its own and that he would become a reader, an avid reader on his own, without any prompts or British accents or monetary incentives. So I decided to use the currency that he valued most, which at the time was playing Fortnite with his friends. So we consummated the deal. And I can now report back, after about six months, that he has almost reached escape velocity. He is blowing through books. He powered through the Alex Ryder series, 11 books. He inhaled Ranger's Apprentice series, 13 books. He's cruising through the Brother Band Chronicles, and he's threatening to start the Harry Potter series. Now, I won't know for sure whether this Fortnite for reading trade will work in the end, but things seem to be looking pretty good. He is on his own, hammering away at his book every morning for 60 minutes at a time with no prompt, no reminders, no guilt. And by the way, I do confirm that he is actually reading the books because I would not put it past him to simply hold the book in front of his face and not read the words. And I do this by quizzing him about the stories on our car rides to and from swim practice and lacrosse practice. I ask him to give me the rundown, the plot, the setting, the characters, the hero's journey. And he'll talk for about 20 minutes about every detail in the book. So I don't think he's faking it. Now, time will tell 
whether this new engagement with reading, I won't quite say it's a love of reading yet, but time will tell if this new engagement with reading will outlast his Fortnite fascination. I pray that it will. And if the promise to play Fortnite has turned my youngest son into a reader for life, I'm all in. The last quick tip that seemed to work, and I think it holds true for all age groups, especially for the reluctant readers out there, is to make sure that the child is enjoying the first few books they read. Let them know that if they are bored or they don't like the book, switch to a new book. Now is not the time to ram Shakespeare and Homer down their throats. I don't care what they read. I don't care if what they want to read is below their reading level. I just care that their eyes are tracking words across a page and that they're sustaining concentration for more than a few seconds at a time. If they like what they're reading, they're more apt to continue, and it won't be looked at as a chore. Worry about the level that they're reading at a much later date, if at all. All I try to do is to build a habit of reading so it becomes part of the routine at almost any cost. So far with my three sons, there's been a 100% direct correlation between interest in reading and SAT verbal scores. And this is with all of them getting A's in the same advanced English classes with the same exact teachers. Once again, I'm not saying that it's a 100% causal relationship, but it's pretty close in my small sample size. And it holds true for all the private prep wellers who I work with. I know whether or not they are avid readers and their SAT verbal scores almost always line up. As my sixth grader moves up the ranks, I will soon have yet another data point on where he ends up on his verbal SAT score. If he keeps up on the pace that he's at right now, he may just have turned the corner in the nick of time. So for those of you out there with younger children, please, for the love of God, do what you can to turn them into readers. Try to get that flywheel going. I don't care if you use a British accent or a costume show or co-reading or a monetary reward or a deal with Fortnite like I did, do what it takes to convert them. Convert them to avid readers, independent readers who have a love of reading on their own. If you have comments or other strategies that you've used, please share them with us. And I wish you luck. That's all I've got for you today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the support. If you know a parent with an 8th grader, ninth grader, 10th grader in high school that might find this helpful, please share this episode with them. You can do that by finding that small box with a tiny arrow pointing up. That's the share button. Click that button, text your friends the link, and ask them to give it a listen. If you have questions, comments, or an idea for an upcoming episode, please reach out to me. You can do that by email. You can DM me on Instagram. Check out our blog, Facebook. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. Till next week, goodbye, good luck, and never stop preparing. This podcast is brought to you by PrepWell Academy. PrepWell Academy is my one-of-a-kind online mentoring program that delivers to your ninth or 10th grader a short, highly relevant video from me every week every Sunday, in fact, where I give them a heads up about what they should be thinking about to stay ahead of the game. To get these valuable lessons into your child's hands, please head over to prepwellacademy.com and enroll your child today.